Welcome to the Business Growth Podcast with me, Kevin Miller. On this podcast, you're going to hear some awesome interviews from business leaders, experts, and entrepreneurs as they share their story, their journey, and some expert tips and insight of the things they've learned along the way. So sit back, enjoy, learn, and grow. And thanks for joining me. My guest today has been described by Paul Hogan as part Bear Grylls, part Bill Gates, but a 100% Aussie larrikin. Born in Roseville, New South Wales, he is known as one of Australia's most successful entrepreneurs, adventurers, authors, philanthropists and aviators. Australian of the Year in 1986 and a companion of the Order of Australia, he is a World Aviation Record holder and is a National Trust living treasure. I'm very excited to chat with my guest today. Welcome to the show, Dick Smith. Hi, Kevin. Great to be talking to you. Yeah, thank you so much, Dick. With all the fantastic things that you've done, the achievements, and all these these sort of titles that I've shouted out there, how, how do you define yourself as a person? I describe myself as a car radio installer. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's really the only qualification. I've just written my autobiography, and I had to sort of really examine my life, and yes. I realised that... That, uh, in fact, my only qualification is that of a car radio installer, and I have my BP award from the Boy Scouts. So, my two qualifications. You're, all, you're also an aviator, though. You've got those qualifications. You can fly uh, many different aircraft, can't you? Oh, that's absolutely right. Yeah, I do have a private pilot license and a helicopter license, and also a balloon license. So, I've been able to use those and have some fun. Yeah, and no, all look, it's, I'm doing the research for the for the interview, Dick. You know, it's incredible some of the things that you've done. You know, very very impressive, and you've led such a you know you know you're still living, but you've led such a fantastic life. You know, so many great great achievements and so many great things that you've done. I wanted to sort of talk to you about the business journey to begin with, if we can. I know that you at school, you know, you weren't sort of the most best student in the class, so to speak. No, I wasn't. I was absolutely hopeless at school, and in fifth class in primary school, I've still got my report. I came 45th out of 47th in the class. So I wasn't much good at schoolwork. Uh, what happened was I left school and I got a job in a factory. Yep. And then I, one day, the I uh, became a salesman selling two-way radios, the type of two-way radios that taxi cabs were fitted with. Mm-hmm. And one day, the company I was working for said that it was no longer going to service the radios. And I thought, here's a great chance. And so I started a little business with $610, called it Dick Smith Electronics, and it was fixing manly cab radios and also selling car radios. And that ended up turning into Dick Smith Electronics, which went to being a company doing over a billion dollars a year turnover. Yeah, it's incredible. $610 startup. That was back in 1968, if my my research tells me correct. Yeah, exactly right. 1968, August the 8th, when I opened the doors, it was in the northern Sydney suburb of the of Neutral Bay called the Big Bear Car Park, where I found out later all businesses had gone broke. But luckily, I started off there $15 a week rent and started fixing the two-way radios and then just built it from there. One day, I went into the city to get some electronic components to do some repairs, and the service was so bad from the company that sold the parts that I thought, look, I'll start selling electronic components. And that's how the Dick Smith Electronics that 
I ended up expanding to over 40 shops all around Australia before I sold it to Woolworths. Ah, right, okay, so born out of an opportunity and born out of, a, you know, identifying a way of doing something better, I guess. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, so I think I cover pretty well in the book that I'm a great copier. And what I did was I was uh, getting the business going, selling electronic components, and I noticed in Electronics Australia magazine, which was sort of the Bible for electronics enthusiasts, I noticed ads from American companies for their catalogs. And so I copied that idea and bought out the Dick Smith Electronics Australian catalog and, and ended up printing that in the electronics magazines. And that's why we did so well, because... Lots of enthusiasts all around Australia wanted to buy electronic parts and wanted a really good catalogue to be able to order the parts from. And it grew in the 1970s, obviously, with um, the introduction of personal computers and CB radios. That kind of took it to the next level, didn't it? Yeah, look, I was incredibly lucky. When I look back, I ran all of those incredible booms, the TV game boom, and then the uh, telephone answering boom, and then, as you mentioned correctly, CB radios had just been introduced. They were huge. And then we we moved into computers. We sold what we called the Dick Smith System 80, which I think had either 4K or 16K of memory. I can't remember. It had a little cassette deck. Mm -hmm. And... uh, we sold thousands and thousands of these quite simple computers that really couldn't do much, but were great for people to learn computers and to get into that field. And what gave you the confidence, Dick, that back in back in the day to you know to start with that six hundred dollar startup? You did it with your then fiance, now wife, Pip. Back then, I guess you weren't the most uh, you know the highest in the class, <laughs> top of the class. But what what gave you the confidence to go and give it a go? It really was. It, I didn't really have any confidence. I had no idea I'd do so well. I thought. I might have a business with two or three people working for me. And I really, because I had no qualifications, I thought I was a failure. That was the reason I started the business fixing the cab radios and then selling the electronic components. And I was more surprised to anyone when I found out that I was actually quite a good businessman. And as I've written in the book, I basically copy the success of others. And I also surround myself with capable people. I was really good at getting good people to work for me. Yeah, and how how did you go about doing that, Dick? What was what was the the exercise for finding good people? It'd be good for well, yeah, I'd, I'd advertise in the electronics magazines for staff, and then I then I'd interview them and the ones who had good knowledge of electronics and seemed enthusiastic. The tough decisions I'd make if I put someone on as a manager, I would try them out for six months, and if it wasn't working, I'd tell them, look, this is not working for you and for me, and I need to get someone else. And that was quite tough. Quite often, it was the third person I'd put in the position who would be successful. And uh, by being tough and getting the best people and then making sure I paid them well to keep them, that was the reason the business did so well. Yeah, and that over that period, I mean, back in 1968 when you started, then through to 1972 was when you learned to fly. In 1976, you participated in the Perth to Sydney Air Race. That was a busy four or five years for you. It sure was. Look, <laughs> I never thought, I never thought I'd be able to fly. People often think when they think of Dick Smith and my helicopter flight around the world, they think I must have always knew I'd be a pilot, but that's quite wrong. I never thought I'd be a pilot. I never thought I'd have enough money. Mm -hmm. But one day when I had Dick Smith Electronics going for two or three years, a friend of mine had started a a little flying school at Bankstown Airport. He said, why don't you come over and learn to fly? It only costs $25 per hour. And you could come over early in the morning before work. And so I thought, oh, that might be a good idea. And I had 
that amount of money available. So I went off and I got my fixed wing license and never really enjoyed flying fixed wing aircraft that much. But um, one day I was stranded at an airport because I didn't have an instrument rating and I couldn't fly in cloud. And uh, when I was waiting at the airport for the cloud to lift, a helicopter came in and landed. And I walked over to the pilot and I said, how, how come? How how can this helicopter fly when the weather's so bad? And he said to me, he said, oh, he said, with a helicopter, you just fly under the cloud, and if it gets too low, you land and have a cup of tea with somebody. And honestly, I looked at him, my mouth dropped open. I thought, that is fantastic. And so I went off and ordered myself a helicopter and then learned to fly it. And since then, I've done over 8,000 hours in helicopter flying and twice around the world by helicopter and really loved it. All because you love the cup of tea, Dick. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> all, all because I love the all because I love the idea of landing and have a cup of tea when the weather was bad. He's just setting up a yarn at the end of, at the end of the the trip. Thirty four, yeah. thirty four. You were when you bought your first helicopter. It's uh, you know it's it's young to be you know to have had that you know the license first of all and then get the helicopter. I mean, some people listen to those things, myself included, and think, wow, like they're big feats. They're big things to go and to go and achieve. But you, the way that you describe it, 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 it seems to see, be kind of just a, a normal thing for you, you know, as much as it's a, it's a large thing for us, you know? Well, it was. Luckily, I had great difficulty in learning to fly the helicopter. They're quite hard to hover. Mm-hmm. That's where you're sort of hovering above the ground. And I said to my instructor at one stage, after I'd been trying to learn to hover for about two weeks, I said, are there any people who can't learn to fly a helicopter? And luckily, my, my instructor lied to me. And he said, no, no. He said, Dick, everyone can learn. There's no problems. Everyone can learn. And so I kept persevering, and I finally got the knack of hovering. But I then found out later that there are some people who just can't get the knack of it. So you need to sort of – it's like a bit like riding a one-wheeled bike, which I've never done, but I know how unstable and how hard that would be. Well, that's like flying a helicopter. It's incredible some of some of the things you've done. And how did you find the time, Dick? You know, having the the successful business and you know doing all yeah. these, doing all these wonderful things. How did the time arrive? Where did you get? I, it from? I seemed to, I seemed I seemed to be able to do about five things at once. I've always <laughs> been like that. And yeah. uh, so I was flying around the world, expanding the business, opening Australian Geographic. Mm-hmm. I, I was, the, as you mentioned, the Australian of the Year. So I had to do a tour right around Australia for that. And I managed to fit it all in, probably four or five things all happening at once. And that was quite exciting. And I guess some of that goes back to having the, the competent people around you that you mentioned earlier and bringing them into the business to, to let you do some of these these things, you know? That's, that's exactly right. I've always been a very good delegator and uh, you're absolutely right getting the competent people and then training them and then putting in good systems. I was really good at putting in systems that could be replicated. And even when we had, I think it was 38 shops around Australia, they all had strong systems. I managed to get, I'd met the man who started McDonald's in Australia, Peter Ritchie. And I thought, I thought, gee, if they can make money out of selling hamburgers, they must have some pretty good systems in place. So I managed to get him on the Dick Smith board. Okay. And uh, after after I'd sold to Woolworths, we got Peter uh, McDonald, and, and he was just fantastic. Peter Ritchie, I should say, and he was fantastic in suggesting to us how we could put systems in so we could run a successful business. Yeah, no, and I guess you're, I guess you're very technical minded, Dick. So you looking at systems and creating systems, input and output. You know, it's something that you probably quite enjoyed as well, I'd imagine. Yeah, I think so. I'm I'm a practical, I'm not a theoretician. I'm not very good academically, but yeah. I'm good practically and also good at copying others and uh, asking advice. I've always been good at asking advice. Mm-hmm. And I remember 
it, when I became the chairman of the Civil Aviation Safety Authority, one of the first things I said at the board meeting was, oh, look, we should go around the world and ask advice and copy the best. And there, you could have heard a pin drop. Everyone looked at me as if I was completely mad. And they thought, you know, already they thought we were the best in Australia, so we didn't need to copy anyone else, where normally if you copy what's best, you can do really well. What do you remember about those early years of business? Obviously, you were doing you know fantastically well. The the business was growing. You were international. You were into Hong Kong, North Carolina, LA. You know the business was um, having annual sales of, of seventeen million dollars in ten years. So what what's um you know what's the, the memories that you have of that period of time? Albeit the you know the fantastic things you were doing in the aviation industry as well. But what's your, well, what's your memories of business? Well, the memory of the, uh, building the business up, it was so exciting and so unknown. So yeah. I had no idea that I would be doing well and make myself into a millionaire. That wasn't the plan. And uh, so that was exciting. And, yeah, they were really exciting days. I remember, especially I'd mentioned CB Radio before, but yeah. Citizens Band Radio was just coming in and the government had this ridiculous rule that you had to get a ham radio license to operate a CB radio. And most young people couldn't do that, so they'd just get the radio and operate it. They called themselves pirates, oh, yes. and they would operate them illegally. And so I decided that I should get it legalized, and so I spent a lot of time going backwards and forwards to Canberra, to Parliament House, mm-hmm. to the Minister of Communications at the time, Tony Staley, and I managed to get CB radios legalized so anyone as they can now, can just buy a CB radio and use them for car-to-car communication. And that was an exciting thing that I worked on. And you do, you know, you're, you're known for that, that you are known for sort of challenging the status quo. You know, you've done that a few times in, in recent years and obviously you did something similar with the CB radios. What, what's your motivation for doing that? Where does that come from? Well, the CB radio one, I suppose you could say, was the dollar, you know, making money. Uh, But I've been involved in other things. Uh, One of the best things I was involved in back in the uh, 1980s when I was uh, appointed uh, Australian of the Year, my job that year, I tried to get rid of cigarette advertising that was directed at children. And people probably can't believe this now, but back in the 80s, the cigarette companies like Philip Morris used to run advertisements in the Women's Weekly and in uh, teenage magazines selling their cigarettes, their Peter Jackson cigarettes. And uh, at the time, I was involved with the Reverend Ted Knopf's and the Life Education Movement, which was communicating to kids the damage that drugs can do, both legal and illegal drugs. And here I was doing that at the same time the cigarette companies were showing pictures of beautiful young girls sitting on park benches holding a Philip Morris cigarette. Mm -hmm. And so I worked that year really hard, and I think it took about two years, and we got a total ban on cigarette advertising directed at young people. So that was really worthwhile. Yeah, and and you're obviously someone that seeks, um, you know, obviously you've got passion projects as well, your philanthropy, but you're obviously somebody that that seeks a bit, it's a bit of a thrill seeker, let's be honest, Dick. Are you a thrill seeker? Am I a what? A thrill seeker. Do you know you talking about the excitement yeah. of business and the journey yeah. of that and all the things you've done? Do you do you sort of? Yeah, I call I call myself a responsible risk taker. Yes, <laughs> a, a thrill seeker, yeah. looking for the adrenaline pumping. I mean, when I flew solo around the world in the single engine helicopter, that was a risky adventure, and yes. 
some people could say it was for the thrill. I suppose it was. It was to get the adrenaline pumping excitement of thinking, can I get away with this? And I did. I managed to get right around the world. One little engine kept going. If when I was halfway across the Atlantic Ocean, if the engine had failed, I wouldn't be here. And so I was just very lucky. I always was able to get the best advice and buy the most reliable aircraft. And so that's one of the reasons I'm still alive. And I guess a lot like the business, you know, getting getting in the aviation, getting reliable people, getting the reliable aircraft and getting the right advice. The same in your business experience and your yeah, business journey it, as well. It all fits in together. It's all very similar. But in, I didn't really take very great risks in business because I didn't have any money to start with and I just gradually built up the business. And so that wasn't that risk. I was living at home with my parents when I started the business. And uh, when my wife and I, when we got married, we were quite young and we just rented a small flat so we had no overheads. So I've never really taken big risks in business. I certainly have in my aviation adventures, but uh, uh, luckily I've got away with them. I'm wondering to myself as, as you're talking to come, what what are you thinking about as you're flying? What what are you know some of these things that you're seeing? You know you've flown over Everest, for instance. You know what what goes through your mind when you're in that in that seat? And well, everything everything from excitement to absolute fear. I mean, a lot of the time, I've done five flights around the world and three of them in single engine aircraft, and sometimes in bad weather, I was quite frightened and. Uh, one of my documentary films, you can hear my voice and I've got a flutter in my voice because I'm so scared, I'm worried. The weather had closed in around me and I'm trying to get from Greenland to Iceland and I wondered how I was going to go. But then when it came to, say, flying over Mount Everest, it was in the most perfect weather and I flew within 500 feet of the summit. I could see footsteps in the snow, wow. which were the a Spanish team had climbed the mountain the day before and I could see their footsteps the footprints so that was exciting so everything from wonderful excitement and elation seeing the most beautiful sights to absolute fear and being wishing I wasn't there when things are bad you know you've done some things you know mentioning that Everest flight that's things that some people can only dream of Dick it's incredible to hear you know that experience and for you to recount it it's um you know it's wonder it's wonderful to hear um, you, right. you you sold the business in 1980 to Woolworths for 25 million dollars. What yep. uh, what do you think you would have been doing? What do you think, or what do you think you would? Where do you think you would have been if you've never started that business? What would you be doing right now? If I'd stayed with the business, if you hadn't, if you hadn't had the business in the beginning, what what, what path do you think you would have uh, went down? Well, it's interesting. I probably uh, there's two things I was interested in. I put in my book. One was electronics and radio and the other one was the out of doors and so I might have concentrated on the out of doors and joined the National Park Service and be a National Park Ranger. I've always thought that would be my alternative lifestyle so either in in the office making money or out in the National Park and enjoying myself so but I didn't do that. Luckily I was able then to buy some nice land up on the north coast and turn it into a mini national park so I had both. So you've got it on your doorstep now. You're enjoying the best of both worlds, basically, is what you're saying. De- definitely. <laughs> and if you had stayed with the business, Dick, what, what, how do you think you know t- things would have changed? Obviously, wealth brings freedom, doesn't it? It lets you allows you to do certain things. So, you know, if you had stayed with the business, how would that have? How do you think things would have played out? Well, it's, I mean, I probably could have stayed with the business and made myself a billionaire, and yeah. uh, maybe had multiple wives and families like Rupert Murdoch. But <laughs> I'm I'm glad I sold out when I lost interest. And I didn't know everyone working for me. I sold Dick Smith Electronics. Then I started Australian Geographic Magazine and the Australian Geographic Society. And I think I owned that for about seven or eight years. And 
once again, I, I sold that. I sold Dick Smith Electronics to Woolworths and then I sold Australian Geographic to Fairfax Newspapers because I got bored and I wanted to have new challenges. And I think my last business that I worked on was Dick Smith Foods, yep. selling Australian foods and supporting Australian farmers. And that wasn't a money-making venture, but it was doing really good work for helping local farmers and producers. And I, that gave me a lot of satisfaction. Yeah, and, and you were very passionate about that, you know, stopping overseas uh, companies buying, you know, Aussie food producers in yeah. particular. And I think from memory, uh, what I read was that you provided nearly all of the profits from the Dick Smith Foods business to, to charity. Yeah, now all of the profits, we gave $11 million away. We turned over about $400 million of helping Australian businesses. But yeah, the best thing was... We, I, I copied Paul Newman Foods. One day I was in my uh, in my kitchen and I looked at a, some Paul Newman, the famous American film yes. star. Yeah. He had his salad dressings and it said all profits to charity. And I thought, that's a great idea. I've done okay out of Australia. I could do something similar. So I copied, I always say copy the success of others. I copied Paul Newman and set up Dick Smith Foods to give the profits to charity, and we did, and I got great satisfaction out of being involved, helped lots of farmers, and produced a lot of really good food. Yeah, no, wonderful. You mentioned, you know, about copying, and you mentioned about creating fantastic, you know, and, and efficient systems within your business, Dick. What other business lessons can you share with our listeners? What, you know, what what's the sort of recipe for success, or what can you share? Well, my simple, I've got a word called, uh, what's it, um, cashed, C-A-S-H-E-D, and the C stands for communicate well, try not to have misunderstandings. Yep. A stands for ask advice, copy the success of others. C-A-S-S is keep things simple, never overcomplicate things. H is be honest. I, I reckon you're not going to be successful unless you're honest because you need to surround yourself with other people who will quickly detect if you're not honest. H-E is E is for enthousi- enthusiasm. In other words, you've got to be enthusiastic and motivational even when times are tough. And then the last letter, D, of the, of the mnemonic cashed is D, discipline, which is hard work. You've got to put hard work if you want to be successful and that that formula you can do quite well in business yeah no that's that's great to hear and that enthusiasm element what motivates you dick what you know what or even or has it changed over time more more to the point back in the day to to later on now are you still motivated by the same things what what gets you going yeah enthusiasm is a hard thing people say to me oh dick you're always enthusiastic but no i'm not i'm like all people where you go up and down sometimes you're enthusiastic other times you're not but i i I realized in the early days of business when sometimes we had some tough months when the business was really hard and that's when i had to get out and try and motivate everyone to be enthusiastic because the times weren't good and that's when the whole business can go broke and so you've got to get there and motivate people so i had to work hard i go up and down in my enthusiasm levels like everyone else but Sometimes you have to be a bit of a showman to get out and be enthusiastic and to motivate others to perform well. Yeah, yeah. be a bit of a performer and let people, you know, even if you're not feeling it yourself, get out there and, and, and sort of make people think that you are just to get the performance, I suppose. Yeah, Exactly, that's exactly correct. And what's your biggest strength, Dick? Oh, my biggest strength. Oh, gee, that's a hard one. Um, <laughs> I, think I, I think I communicate well. I don't 
have too many misunderstandings. And uh, yes, I learned when I was young how misunderstandings can be costly. Mm -hmm. So I learned to communicate well. And normally if I'm asking someone to do something, I pay them the courtesy of explaining in detail why I want something to be done and how I'd like it to be done and make it really clear so there's no misunderstandings. I'm surrounded, over the years I've been surrounded with people who have misunderstandings all the time and they accept it as just a part of life. Yep. Whereas whenever I have a misunderstanding and it's not that often, I always blame myself and I think, gee, I didn't communicate and make it clear enough. No, that's, I mean, that's fantastic hearing you talk about the communication and, and taking the time. I heard you say the word time there, Dick, because we're so busy, everybody gets so busy, you know, and just, and giving people the time of day to communicate properly, that's so important. It's fantastic to hear you, to hear you share that, you know. Well, that's what I really think you have to give the time and that's terribly, terribly important. Mm -hmm. And what fulfills you, Dick? You know, are, all the things that you've done, all these achievements, what fulfills you nowadays? You know, you've been married for over 50 years um, yep. You know, what what fulfills you on a daily basis? Where do you get Oh, well, from? I love, I, I fulfills me. I do a lot of reading. I travel uh, where my wife and myself are presently driving around Australia. We're in a four-wheel drive. We Super. Last year in June, we drove from Perth to Darwin and um, we did the inland route via Mika Farah and the Pilbara. It was just absolutely magnificent. And you can see why Australia is so wealthy when you drive through the Pilbara. And <laughs> we did a harbour tour a harbour tour at Port Headland and to see those huge ships taking the iron ore out, I realise why we're such a wealthy country. Since then, we've driven from Darwin across the Townsville on all the back dirt roads, four-wheel drive and looking at the beautiful bush, the, the magnificent Australian parakeets, the Gouldian finches, the, uh, the galahs. Mm -hmm. We've got the most beautiful birds in, on earth. And Australia, the outback Australia is magnificent and I say to everyone, uh, you know, this is the second time we will have driven around Australia. Fortunately, I've flown around Australia a number of times, and so, but you've got to see it from the air, and then, if possible, you've got to see it from the ground. Yeah, and you've been, you know, you've been very fortunate to do. Well, I can relate to that, Dick, because I've I've been travelling around Australia myself recently in a caravan with my young family, and some of the experiences are incredible. You know, some of the places, some of the wildlife you mentioned, just. And it's for me, it's an experience thing, you know. For me, it's it's what you definitely. see is beautiful, but the experience and the exposure you get to seeing these things, it's it's incredible. And well, definitely. And you know, I've met. It's wonderful that you're doing that because I've met people who have gone around, the, been around the world a few times, but have never really seen a lot of Australia. And yeah. what they're missing out on is so staggering. We we have a beautiful country, and uh, the wildlife is magnificent. And getting out there with a caravan and camping wherever you can, I like starting an open fire and lying around it in the, at night with the stars above and just absolutely fantastic. I have an affinity, I think, with our Aboriginal Australians who, of course, are experts at that. I'm, I'm just curious, you've seen, because you've seen so many amazing things, you know, and, and you, as you said, you've seen, it from, you've seen it from the air, you've seen it from land, you know, do you still get amazed? I do. I'm absolutely amazed. If I get close to a sulfur-crested cockatoo, I think... What a magnificent bird. It's the most beautifully designed. Hard to believe it can be just by evolution, even though that's what I believe. Yeah. But no, our bird life is magnificent. Our beautiful little um, yellow-necked wallabies, wow, they're on the, in the Flinders Ranges. You can see them there at Arkarula, yeah. and they are just the most magnificent creatures. So yes, generally, 
you know, I love being on the ground and being in the outback. That's the most wonderful thing. It doesn't cost a lot of money, mm-hmm. and I'd recommend anyone who's listening, look, I've been around the world many times. I've been to 200 different countries, and nothing to me compares with outback Australia and being close to the earth. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's wonderful here, and I know I know the um, the wallabies that you're referring to. <laughs> My children love them. I remember seeing them myself actually, so it's uh, it's nice to hear. It bring, brings back some yep. brings back some nice memories. I want to Nick. I want to talk about the philanthropy. You know the the philanthropy. Yep. If I should say my Scottish accent, um, because. You know, it's some people. You know, you mentioned Rupert Murdoch, for instance. You know, but some people at your level, they, you know, they, it's a, there's a you, you accumulate wealth, and then you just keep accumulating wealth, or there's a desire to constantly, constantly do that. You know, and you've kind of went against the grain, as you have done with a lot of things, and um, you know, you've given a lot of money to charity. It was reported in two thousand and seven you'd, you'd contributed over one million every year to charity since the sale of Dick Smith Electric. So. You know, you've done a lot. You've given a lot back. So, you know, where where does that come from? Like, where, you know, how why are you different to everybody else? Right, I, I'm. I shouldn't be different to everyone else. I, I follow. If if in America, if you live in America and you're a, become wealthy, it's almost automatic that you also become a, a philanthropist and you're known as to be openly helping other people. It's just expected of you. It is sad that it's different in Australia, yeah. and that we have people like. I mean, a good example is Rupert Murdoch, who's not known as a philanthropist. Now, maybe he does give money away secretly, but I can't work out why, and that's quite sad. Yeah. Uh, over in West. In Australia, of course, you have Andrew Forrest, who's very generous, and he's a wonderful example. But of, I did a bit of a check, and we have about 100 billionaires in Australia, and only 15% of them are known as philanthropists. So the, that means the vast majority of our billionaires, they either give nothing or they do it so-called secretly. But when I've spoken to the major charities and I've asked do you ever get large amounts of money secretly or anonymously? And they say, we don't, it doesn't happen. So basically, my giving, it, it was ingrained in me and the Boy Scouts uh, under the Scout promise to help other people at all times. And so when I did well, I decided I'd start giving money away and I only do it for selfish reasons. And that is that it makes me feel good and, and uh, I don't feel guilty about the wealth I have compared to other people because I'm trying to share it around and to help people. And uh, I, look, I know there are lots of people, just typical working people who donate to the Salvation Army and maybe to the local uh, Red Cross and groups like that. It is sad to me that so many of our really wealthy are so stingy that they don't give or if they do, they do it secretly and I don't know why they do that. Yeah, well, it's an, it's an incredible example, you know, what you're doing, Dick. It's a great example for anyone that's, um, you know, on going on the right path in terms of, you know, they're doing well financially and or even if they're not. And just, just to, to use the Scouts example, just to give back a little bit, you know, I think it's... Yeah, it's well, I, I feel... Yeah, I feel, Kevin, I feel it's an an obligation. You're fulfilling an obligation and you shouldn't be doing it secretly. You should be doing it openly and you should be doing it because it's an obligation that you've done well in this country. So you have an obligation not only to pay your taxes, uh, but also to give back and to try and help as many people as you can. Very refreshing to hear, Dick. It's, it's wonderful. You've had so many achievements, Dick. What would, can you sort of say what your greatest achievement is with all the things that you've done? Married over 50 years, you know, <laughs> um, which is an achievement in itself, you know. And, uh, yeah, well, I, yeah, well, I've been very lucky. I mean, to marry, I married Pip when she was 19 and we're still happy 
55 years later or 53 years or whatever it is yeah. later and that's a lot of luck in that because people change over, during their lifetime Definitely. but um, we, we've we always got on well together and had a wonderful life together so we've been very fortunate um, greatest achievement oh, that's really hard to say others should make that decision mm-hmm. I think that I was really proud to set up Dick Smith Electronics and uh, and and employ many many people and even today when i own dick smith electronics i bought out a series of books called dick smith's fun way to electronics and we sold hundreds of thousands of of these books because we have to reprint them all the time and even today i'll be walking down the road and someone will stop me and they'll say oh dick dick smith and then they say look i'm a engineer with a PhD in r- rocket science, but I got into electronics through your Funway books oh, when I was a little kid, yeah. and that makes me feel really good. So I'm probably proudest that I got Dick Smith Electronics going and yeah. ended up with so many people being trained and getting good careers in electronics. And I think you're making an impression on people by the sounds of it. You know, that's what that, that what the example you've mentioned, you've made, you know, you've made an impression on someone, you've in, even helping, you know, employing people at the end of the day. That seems like you've had more joy from those things than the Yeah, actual, definitely. No, that's what definitely makes me feel good. And the life story, the the new books out there now, My Adventurous Life, obviously we've touched on some of the things that we can expect to hear from your inspiring life story that, you know, what, what's, um, what's happening in the future? What's, what's around the corner for you? Got any passion projects? You got anything <laughs> that you're up? Are you flying around no, the world? Go to Everest again? I'm, what are you up to? I'm, <laughs> no, I'm not doing risky adventures. I'm still flying. And, yeah. um, I'm very, I'm very pleased that I finished my life story because I think anyone who's listening now, who's got, um, kids or grandkids who are hopeless at school, I think you should get hold of the book and have a read of it because it shows you that even though it is handy if you are bright academically, that you can be pretty dumb like I was and still do okay. And I think that's the strongest message in my book, that you don't have to be an absolute expert at schoolwork. I always tried hard, but I couldn't get anywhere, but I was still able to do okay. And I think it's still possible if you follow the formula I put in the book to still do well. Yeah, no, it's, it's wonderful. Dick, and, and what about um, the process? You know, the process of writing the book for you, it must have been recalling some of these things. You know, we've, we've, thrown, out a few, we've thrown a few dates out there today with, you know, some of the achievements and, you know, you recounted the date that you first started the business to the day, you know, back, back in the yeah, day. Yeah, so. I'll I, I tell you what, Kevin, it's interesting. I've always kept diaries. Since I was a schoolboy, I had little diaries and for some weird reason, I've always kept diaries and so I had all these dates and so... I sat down to sort of write the book during the the lockdown with COVID mm-hmm. year last year and the year before when it all started, and so I had lots of stuff of dates, and so then I put it on tape and it got typed up, and then I got some really good writers to help me put it into proper English, and I'm really pleased with the way the book came out. In fact, what's happened, it's hard to get at the moment because they originally printed forty thousand and sold out, so then they printed another 10,000, and just recently I was at the bookshops at one of the airports, and I couldn't get a copy, and they said they were all sold out, so they're now reprinting again, I think, so it'll be over 50,000 copies of my book sold, which is not bad. You can add that to the list of all the other fantastic achievements that, you, that you've had, you know, it's, an, it's incredible, Dick, it's, it's, it's awesome. What, what was the feelings recalling a lot of those things? You know, I'm, it's, it's, uh, you're 78 years old, Dick, is that right? 
Yeah, I'm 78. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I feel as if I've been incredibly fortunate. I, I won the lottery of life. I was born in Australia in the 1940s. I've never had to go to war to fight for this country, but I've benefited from the enormous growth. But as you people will realize if they read my book, especially the epilogue, I'm, I'm convinced that we can't always have growth in population and in the use of resources and energy. I believe we should be living in balance and we should be planning that now because you can't always have endless growth that's impossible that resonates with myself again having done the traveling that you know i think that comes from traveling when you see when you see some of these wonderful places that we've been fortunate to see you, you start to realize that you know what they're, they're they're not finite are they you know they're we need, yeah. to, we, need to, we need to look after them and um it's a great lesson lesson for life a great lesson for business as well to look after your people as well you know it's it's, it's wonderful to hear so yeah, the, definitely. So moving forward, then no, a bit more travelling in the in the motorhome deck for the next foreseeable future. No, no other stuff on the horizon. No, 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 no great risky adventures. I think the riskiest adventure I probably did, if it wasn't the shipboard landing in the helicopter where I had to land in the North Pacific to get refuelled because Russia wouldn't let me land. Yes. It was probably the balloon flight across Australia where. It, one stage we were doing, we started off from Carnarvon in Western Australia and at one stage in the balloon we were doing 160 kilometres an hour in the jet stream, wow. but we knew we knew when we landed we had to land in less than about 15 kilometres an hour wind, otherwise we'd be injured. And so that was frightening when the huge speed, luckily, as sheer luck would have it, when we finally got to the east coast of Australia, having gone right across the continent, we descended, and you wouldn't believe it, we looked down and we descended and landed in the Clarence River just near Surface Paradise, and there was basically no wind, and so we were just incredibly lucky. What goes through your mind in those instances, Dick? I'm just, I'm, you know, you you, descri- you describe that to me, and I'm thinking, oh my god, you know, I'm thinking, what's this is like you do. Well, what goes, what went through my mind is I was frightened, and yeah, um, yeah. yeah, I can tell you that a lot of my adventures, I think, and I mentioned this in the book, how when I was flying the Atlantic in the helicopter, at one stage I was so scared because the weather had closed in, and I was trying to. I decided to turn back to Greenland, but um, the the weather behind me had all closed in, so I had to keep going forward. And I eventually got through. And I thought, if I if I get alive to Iceland, I'll put the helicopter on a ship, and I'll come home just fly back with Qantas. <laughs> and uh, but the interesting thing was that was because I was so scared that I was going to lose my life. But when I actually landed at Reykjavik in Iceland, and then went and had a cup of coffee. I sat there for about 10 minutes and I thought, oh, maybe I should just try and get across the Atlantic to uh, to England. And I had Prince Charles waiting for me and it was arranged for me to land at Balmoral Castle to be welcomed by Prince Charles. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll at least go as far as Prince Charles. And in fact, the whole flight around the world in the little helicopter was like that. Every stage, if the weather was good, I was happy when the weather was bad. I used to think, I'm mad to be here. I, should, I shouldn't be doing this. I should be uh, you know, g- g- stopping the flight now before I lose my life. Yeah, no, it's, it's incredible. Balmoral uh, Castle's not a bad part of the world either, Dick, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, well, I realise you probably come from up the road. And, yes, uh, yeah. You probably, you, you, in 1980, um, 1982 it was in August. Where would have you been in 1982? I wouldn't have been born, believe it or not. <laughs> Oh, well, there you are. Well, you couldn't be there. You couldn't be there, but 
Uh-huh. I came roaring down the D, the River D. Yes. And I'll tell you what happened. And I put this in the book. I thought Balmoral Castle would be a whopping great big castle like Windsor Castle. Mm. And so I came around and down the valley, the River D Valley, mm. and I'm looking for this castle. And as I came around the bend, there's no, there's, um, <laughs> there's no castle there. And I thought, gee, I'm in the wrong valley. I've mucked yeah. it all up and I'm going to let Prince Charles down. Yeah. But um, then I looked down in the trees and there was this little castle. It's not very big, <laughs> but Bal- Balmoral Castle is not very big and it was down in the trees. And, so, and I could see all the people waiting there, the media and uh, Prince Charles standing there beside his green Range Rover. Yeah. So I came swooping in and landed right in front of him and jumped out of the helicopter and shook his hand and said, hello, how you going, mate? And I'd, and I'd done the first solo helicopter crossing of the Atlantic Ocean, which pretty amazing because I'm an Australian. You'd think someone in the Northern Hemisphere would have done that. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, no, I, I mean, I can't even envisage it, Dick. To be honest, you know, I'm I'm, re- I'm reliving it through reliving it through you, and you know, that's what yeah. we can look forward to in, in the book. I'm sure, you know, the book's yeah. my adventurous life. It's like it's it's an incredible, incredible, you know, life story. Just even talking to you, Dick, I feel very privileged. You know, I really do, genuinely, because it's um. You know the the business stuff is very interesting. You know the success of the business, but just just the way that you've went, your approach, your approach to life is, yep. you, and and you spoke about balance. You know, and it seems very like, important. Yeah, but it just seems like you have that equilibrium. You have that balance in your life, and you've had it. You know, with the success and giving yes. giving back, and um, you know, it's it's very inspiring. It genuinely is for a younger person like myself. And for anyone, it's very inspiring. So, you know, thank you and, and, and well done for such a fantastic, you know. It's a real life. pleasure. It's a real pleasure and it's wonderful to talk to you. Thanks, Dick Smith. If you want to get more from the life story of Dick Smith, jump on and find the book, My Adventurous Life. Dick Smith, thank you so much. Thank you, Kevin. Wonderful to talk to you. Been a pleasure. for joining me on this episode of the business growth podcast if you enjoyed it and you want to come back for more don't forget to subscribe on apple Podcasts, spotify google or wherever it is you get your podcasts you can catch up with me on social media on facebook at make my business better instagram at business growth au or you can jump on our website www.businessgrowthperf.com.au see you next time